This is HPR episode 1751 entitled, How I Got Into Linux. It is hosted by Steve Bickle and is about 19 minutes long. The summary is, How I Got Into Linux, LFS and Where I Use Linux Now. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hi, my name's Steve Bickle and here's my How I Got Into Linux episode. By the late 90s I'd moved into IT as a project manager. The trade press and PC mags occasionally mentioned Linux, so I knew it was around and I often saw piles of 3.5 inch floppies accompanied by Red Hat books around the place, but I never saw a working installation. It's hard for me to imagine now, but there was a period during the 90s where I didn't have a home computer at all. Well, it's not actually quite true because I had a sign organiser well several but that's another story and oh yes we had an old Atari ST with a box of games for the kids to play with that was a real bargain at £10 from the school fate we sold the Atari at the same event a couple of years later to raise another £10 for the school anyway it wasn't until 1998 that I bought a nice new Windows 98 PC with a modem and 3D graphics card I'd previously hacked around in the 1980s with home computers, 6502 and Z80 assembly code, and early Amstrad Amstrad 1512 PC clone, so I considered taking a look at Linux, but never really did anything about it. I think then it was 1999 or 2000 I picked up a Nopix CD off the front of a PC mag. The Nopix CD was among the first Linux Live CDs, and on loading it gave a choice of early versions of GNOME or KDE desktops with some applications pre-installed. Nopix was only a partial success for me, since my PC had a Hercules Terminator Beast graphics card, which had the rather cleverly engineered but relatively unpopular Savage S3 chip. It meant that I could only get the X server running by typing what were, to me at the time, arcane commands at boot time. The Nopix CD enabled me to have a good look at both GNOME and KDE. Both seemed to do the job, and were not as awkward as the OS2 workstation I'd had occasion to use. At that point, Linux for me was an interesting but short interlude between playing G-Police and Populous the Beginning. Fairly soon I lost a little bit of paper with the arcane commands, and Nopix joined the shiny coaster pile along with the other PC mag and ALO discs. From here on my timeline gets a bit muddy, but this is how I think things went, and how my use of Linux became increasingly significant. Much later now, in early 2007, having read good things about Ubuntu, I decided it might be time to look again at Linux. So I downloaded Ubuntu and installed it as a dual boot on my relatively new desktop PC. It worked fine, but I couldn't get the wireless network card to work, so I had to buy a compatible network card from Linux Emporium. 
Like many of us, I often get asked to sort out PCs and laptops for family and friends. On one of those occasions, I had to resort to using a rescue disc. I picked Trinity Rescue Disc. It's a beautiful Linux distro that includes a bunch of handy command line tools that can be used to read NFS and rescue XP machines. So there was another chance of Linux being of practical use to me. My ageing Athlon-powered Acer personal laptop had reached the point where XP was grinding to a halt, in the way that XP machines pre-service pack 3 used to do. So it was a good candidate for Linux. I downloaded Ubuntu Gutsy Gibbon, burned it to a, a disk to install. This proved an interesting challenge, not because of Linux, but due to my own earlier stupidity. The Acer machine used to have a nice, simple, memorable BIOS password. But one of my older teenage daughters had managed to guess my password to use my machine to get to the internet when her laptop wasn't charged. A teenage daughter's internet habits and XP vulnerabilities proved not to be a good mix, so having removed the file sharing software and malware from my machine, I decided to upgrade the login password to something unguessable, and while I was at it, I did the same to the BIOS password. As it turns out, an unguessable password also meant unmemorable, so thereafter I was never able to get into the BIOS to get the Acer to boot from a CD. The BIOS proved uncrackable. I tried all the usual tricks, removing CMOS batteries, shorting reset pins on the motherboard, etc. So to install Linux, I did something that's just not possible with Windows. I took the hard drive from the Athlon-powered Acer and stuck it in an Intel-based Fujitsu laptop. This is the one that wasn't charged earlier. I installed Ubuntu on that machine, then put the drive back into my Acer laptop. Much to my amazement, it booted first time into the desktop with the correct resolution and no errors. That's something that just won't work with a Windows install. Windows ties itself to a particular hardware set, such that it refuses to run if that hardware is significantly changed. Whereas the Linux kernel largely uses the correct drivers dynamically from the selection it was compiled with. I still had to get the wireless network working, which was a bit of a song and dance back in 2007. After much googling and a weekend messing about with command line network commands and different drivers, I eventually discovered a piece of software called FW Cutter, which wrapped a chunk of Windows driver code in Linux driver code and made the wireless work, so I was no longer leashed to the router under the stairs by a Cat5 cable if I needed to use my laptop. Switching over to Linux gave my laptop a new lease of life, and after a couple of months there was no turning back. I had my music collection loaded into Amarok, and I'd installed Compiz Fusion to get the desktop cube and all the other Linux bling working. In 2008, I was given a PC in return for fixing someone's laptop. The PC was an old 800MHz Celeron with 128MB of RAM, which was struggling to run XP. With a 10 minute plus boot time, it was neither use nor ornament unless you had a use for a disc thrashing sound effect machine. But I really needed to provide a PC for my youngest daughter, who was 8 then, as she could never get her hands on the laptop that her, her elder sister shared. And frankly, some of the content on that machine was probably not suitable for her. Initially, I tried damn small Linux and puppy Linux on the machine. They both ran okay, but they were dissatisfying to use after Ubuntu. So I spent a fiver on some second-hand RAM from eBay to get it up to the minimum for an Ubuntu install. Ubuntu worked first time. Not quickly, but quite reliably. I switched it to the Zubuntu edition to speed things up a little. Because the XFE desktop 
needed less resources. I needed to put it in the kitchen, but there was no network port there, and no way my wife was going to stand for Ethernet cables being trailed around the place, so I splashed out on another new wireless network card from Linux Emporium. Then that, too, just worked. So daughter number three had her own computer and was able to play with Tux Paint and write stories in multicoloured 24-point text in Abbey Word. So Ubuntu lasted a month or two, but curiosity got the better of me. I wondered if it was possible to get the desktop cube running on such an old machine. So I picked up an NVIDIA graphics card for £15 on eBay. By this time, Ubuntu Hardy Heron was out, so I reinstalled with that and went back to a GNOME 2 desktop. By this point, Ubuntu was able to automatically install the non-free driver for the NVIDIA card, so with the addition of Compiz Fusion on, the old machine that could barely boot XP had the shiny spinny desktop cube and could play most of the Linux games. This old machine lasted a couple of years before it died of repeated power supply failures. Later that year, I made my son's XP machine into a dual-boot Ubuntu with Compiz Fusion installed, on the basis that it was there to use if he wanted to use it. I had to replace the wireless network card again, though. He did use it. In fact, he preferred it over XP, although latterly he uh, went back to Windows 7. I wanted to try something different, so my desktop PC got converted to CrunchBang after hearing good reports about it on the now sadly uh, finished Linux Outlaws podcast. So now I'm using Linux at home from time to time and also at work. These days, for my job, I work with document management software, which installs against Unix, Linux or Windows. So over the last few years, I've had occasion to work on all three types of operating system. I've had to install this commercial software on both SUSE and Red Hat Linux. And installing this kind of system software, it's can often be slightly more complex on Linux than Unix than on Windows since it's not packaged in their repositories and it involves writing your own startup scripts rather than relying on vendor-provided Windows services. However, the power of the GNU command line tool makes life so much easier when working through log files and fixing problems, so I think it's worth the additional effort of installing onto, onto Linux. I've always needed to know how a thing works, so... During uh, a period when I was doing a commute on the train every day, I decided I would use this commute time to build Linux from scratch, also known as LFS. This is both easier than it sounds and harder than it sounds. It's easier than it sounds because there's a Linux from scratch book downloadable from linuxfromscratch.org website. The book walks you step by step through the process of creating a bootable Linux instance from the source files. It's harder than it sounds because you have to follow the instructions precisely. Really precisely. If it doesn't work, it's because you're not following the book. When building LFS, you can make any excuse you like, but it invariably, if it doesn't work, it's because you didn't do exactly as you were told by the book. <laughs> I built LFS to teach myself a bit more about what's going on under the covers in Linux. Yes, I learnt about the major packages and the toolchain required for the build, but I probably learnt about as much about improving my weakness in reading, comprehension and concentration as I did about Linux. If you choose to walk this particular path, building your own Linux from scratch, I would recommend using a VirtualBox or VMware Virtual Machine to build it. 
taking snapshots at regular intervals during the build process. This way, when it dawns upon you that you once again have not accurately followed the instructions, you can rewind to a snapshot point that, and you won't have to resort to starting back at the beginning. I used VMware for my LFS build since at that time it was available on my work laptop, but I'd probably use VirtualBox if I had to do this again. The sense of achievement on booting your first Linux from scratch is amazing. It's a bit like completing a big Airfix model. As an artifact, it's about as much use. But you do come out the other side slightly more, a slightly more knowledgeable person. In all seriousness though, LFS has been used as the basis for some real projects and can be taken further to produce more useful builds by using the associated products also found on the LFS website. I also had a bit of a play with a Tenedo plug. It was a, an early small ARM powered device running Ubuntu server. Which used a one ter- which I used with a one terabyte portable network drive as a network share to back up all of our media. It could do another a number of other things, some more useful than others, such as running a server-based torrent client. It was also really handy to be able to download albums from my music collection to to my phone using the Tornado Android app when I was away from home. However. The Tornado update process killed all the Tornado services, which were subsequently never recoverable. Although it still backs up all the music in the household to this day. A Dell 1520 laptop was discarded by my eldest daughter after she broke the screen. I installed a new LCD screen that I picked up off eBay, making it ready to reuse. My son needed a laptop for his A-level schoolwork, so this old Dell fitted the bill nicely. Although I could have reinstalled and then service packed the original XP operating system, I didn't really want to spend two nights installing updates and rebooting. So it had to be Linux. At the time I didn't want to install Ubuntu as Unity didn't really seem fit for purpose, so I hunted around for a suitable alternative. I considered Debian, then after trying Mint and a couple of other distros I ended up with Fedora 16. I did wonder if GNOME 3 would be acceptable to a discerning teenager used to using a Windows 7 PC. However, after two minutes of show and tell about GNOME, there was no problem. The only issue with the default Fedora install was getting all of the multimedia up and running. It required some Googling and a bit of command line cut and paste. But it was all working after about 30 minutes of extra effort. After a failed up Fedora update killed the installation... Fedora was replaced by Crunchbang. Some three or more years later, my son still uses Crunchbang on that laptop, but also has a Nexus 7 and a 13-inch Chromebook. Although my youngest daughter has a Chromebook, she still keeps an old Dell 1525 with Linux Mint to watch her DVDs on. Because of the high dependence of the UK university system on Microsoft Word, my eldest daughters are both Windows 7 users which incidentally is also more consistent at consuming media than any Linux distro. I need Windows 7 for my work laptop. Windows 7's proved robust functional, though occasionally annoying. I often resort to Crunchbang or CentOS running in VirtualBox to do things I can't do on the host OS. I also have two Crunchbang laptops. One I use as, my, as a laptop and music player in the kitchen, and another, an old Delft, D410 which sits under the stairs as my home server so that pretty much brings me up to date with where I've got to with uh, 
Linux. The next uh, toy for me to play with uh, with Linux is the recent Raspberry Pi 2, which I managed to get connected last week, and uh, has a rather interesting music toy called uh, Sonic Pi, which I'll need to explore a little more, and may even do a follow-up episode on Sonic Pi. Well, that's it from me. Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.